0: Well, I I love my family. I love my family a lot. I I really like getting together with them around the holidays. haven't seen them in a long time, and there's such a life-giving energy to it all. Lots of good food, lots of laughter, etc. But every year, there's always that one or two family members, when they walk through the door in the midst of the laughter and all of the life-giving energy, I see them and I cringe on the inside. Here I am, I'm enjoying myself, everyone's enjoying one another, and they're ruining my parade here. And I I pray in my head, Lord Jesus, help them not to make eye contact with me. I have nothing in common with them. They're socially awkward, etc. And I actually have this disposition towards non-believers, if I'm really honest with you. I have this suspicion towards non-believers... And I think, Lord, you've called me to love others selflessly, to, to resist my prejudices of my heart, but Lord, don't let me love that person. Don't let me be drawn to that person. And I actually think I'm not alone. I'm kind of digging myself a hole, but hopefully you're finding your own voice and cries of your own heart within mine. We need someone to show us how to love those outside the church. We desperately need help. And last week, Pastor Ron preached from a passage in 1 Corinthians in our sermon series on ways in which the Apostle Paul is exhorting Christians to relate to non-Christians. And then he asked me to preach this week from a passage where Jesus' disposition towards those outside the church is on full display and so we find ourselves in John chapter four, and it's Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And I want to name this on the front end. My hope here is when we're looking at this passage that we might be more drawn to Jesus Himself, and out of that, be more drawn to those outside the church, and to follow His lead in treating them well. That's what we want to do together this morning. So, if you look in your the insert in your bulletin. Um, the text is there. I'm going to read it aloud. It's 30 verses, so hang in there with me. I'm going to read it, and then we will um, we'll look at it together. It's John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Now, there's quite a lot going on in this passage. But the first thing that we see is Christ breaks barriers. If you're familiar with this story, then you know between Jews and Samaritans, there's a lot of social pressure and prejudices and barriers Here's how one commentator described the Samaritans at the time of this interaction. In Jesus' time, the Jews hated the Samaritans even more than they despised pure Gentiles, for they regarded them as polluting the blood of the patriarchs. It was for this reason that the Jews often took the longer routes around Samaria rather than direct and shorter road through the center of the country. We could summarize the social barriers between Jews and Samaritans this way. It's the problem with her gender, her religion, and her sin. First, with her gender. Jewish rabbis were not to have female disciples during this time. And certain pharisaical sects were extremely dogmatic on determining what roles women could play in society and in religious life. Next, with her religion. The Samaritans worshipped multiple gods. They built their own temple. They only adhered to the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And the problem of her sin. This woman had several husbands. We're told this would have, would ha, this would have inevitably alienated her from polite Jewish society and even her uh, Samaritan brothers and sisters. And most commentators highlight that the reason that this woman went to draw water alone was either that she was forced to by polite Jewish society and Samaritan society; they didn't want to associate with her, or. She was so wrought with shame because of her own sin, she didn't want to be around anybody. She wanted to be alone. So what we should feel, my point is this, that this woman is a true outcast. This woman is a true outcast, and we must have this in the back of our minds as we get into this interaction between her and Jesus. So what happens? The first thing we learn in verse 6 is that Jesus is weary and tired, fatigued, from traveling. And before we get into the interaction, the request for water and so on, I kind of want us to just sit in the fact that the second person of the Trinity, we're told, experienced fatigue from travel. What a profoundly normal and human thing for the promised Messiah to experience. So this not only should inform the way that we think about Christ as fully God and fully human, but actually it informs the way that we should be reading this interaction between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. This is a man who understands what it is to be human, but as fully God. So he stops for water and he asks for water. So what what does this do? What is Jesus doing and asking? He's asking for help. He's showing that this woman is someone who deserves respect and someone who has value. That's what he's communicating to this woman Some people have even highlighted that Jesus, tired and weary, needing water, he's actually being vulnerable with this woman and saying, I need something and you have it. I need water. Can I have a drink? Now, it's profound to think that Jesus is tired and that he's actually asking for any human being for water. I mean, it really, if we just kind of, we could preach just one sermon on that. It's profound. But it's even more profound that he's asking this woman for a drink of water. He's breaking so many cultural barriers. He's there alone with her. This would have been appalling to polite Jewish society. One commentator highlights that it's almost, Jesus is acting like he's oblivious to what divides people. And that's exactly right. He is acting oblivious to what divides people. He's modeling for us what it looks like to relate to those outside the church. He's showing her inerrant. He's showing that she is someone of inerrant value. In the TV show Friday Night Lights, uh, which is a TV show about high school football in Texas, there's, one of the star players is a guy named Tim Riggins who um, is an orphan. He and his brother live alone. They were abandoned um, at an early age. And When Tim is not playing football, he can be found partying with multiple girls and usually drunk or hungover. He's a real outcast in society, both in the town, the high school and then even on the football team. You don't want to be caught with Tim Riggins. That's what we that's one thing's clear. Now, his football coach, Coach Eric Taylor, he and his wife have a great marriage. His um, family goes to church every Sunday, his kids obey um, their parents, etc. There's serious barriers between the coach and this troublemaker football player. But something interesting happens when Coach Taylor begins to see serious beauty in Tim's life. He sees that he's a hard worker, he's a loyal friend, he's a sensitive kid. And he commits himself to Tim in a kind of mentorship relationship where Tim actually begins to flourish on and off the football field. And these kind of flickers of goodness in Tim's life as the show progresses become way more apparent for the viewer. And you actually watching the show, Tim has won you over. So I want to ask you, Who in our culture are you allergic to? Who in our culture are you allergic to? Is it the sexually promiscuous? Is it the gay community? Is it the unsafe neighborhoods that you always try to avoid driving through? Is it the liberal denomination? Because they're liberal theological stances, they can't add anything to the kingdom. Who is it that you're allergic to this morning? Whoever came up in your head, that's exactly the people that God has called us as His children to love. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't admit that there are serious prejudices erected in our society between the church and the unbelieving world, and as we've kind of addressed in our own heart. What does this look like to love these people? Well, I think it might look very practically like apologizing and repenting to non-Christians that you haven't showed them with respect or value. It might look like inviting gay neighbors over for dinner. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's our calling. One of the, the essential Christian teachings um, in the Bible is that human beings are created in the image of God. And when sin entered into the world, this image was distorted. distorted. And that's where we get our doctrine of total depravity. We need grace to come from the outside to have a relationship with God. But here's the thing. We believe as Christians that sin, the fall, did not distort or obliterate the image of God in humanity. So I want to ask you, I know you probably believe that on paper theologically, but do you know that people outside the church bear the image of God? Does that inform the ways that you see those outside the church, the way you look at them, the way you talk with them? John Calvin once said, We ought not to reflect on the wickedness of man, but to look to the image of God in them, an image which, covering and obliterating their faults, should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. May we be this kind of people. May we be a people that are on the lookout for the image of God in those outside the church that we might celebrate it, highlight it for them, and ask God to penetrate their hearts that this image might be restored in them comprehensively. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. In the next few verses, this, uh, the importance of water is expounded. They start talking more about water. After being caught off guard by Jesus' request... The woman essentially asked him, how in the world are you, we're alone right now, you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? Like, we're alone right now. What if someone sees us? That's what we should feel. She doesn't realize who she's talking to, but Jesus is patient. This is what he says in in verse 10. Look with me there. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus is beginning to reveal himself. He's beginning to self-disclose more and more through the image of water. She still doesn't get it, but Christ is still patient nonetheless. In verse 12, the woman asks a question about Jacob. Are you greater than our father Jacob? This question is laced with theological implications, but Jesus is not rattled by this. He pushes the the conversation forward, but he does get a little bit more pointed about his metaphor of water. Look with me in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water Christ knows that this woman from Samaria is someone whose soul is thirsty. He's inviting her to have her thirsts quenched by living water. And it's exactly what this woman is looking for. We're told she has had multiple marriages... She's alone and alienated. Most commentators point out that this woman was somebody who looked to the institution of marriage, either its status that it sort of brought in her society or the sexual benefits. She was looking to marriage to fulfill and quench the thirst of her soul. That's what she was doing. And this is something we can relate to, right? Even as Christians, we look to relationships, status, money, security to satisfy our deepest longings. We looked at the things that are actually gifts from God to satisfy us rather than God himself. And in a real sense, this request for a drink, which again is incredibly mundane when we think about it, very normal and human for Jesus to do, it takes a turn into very existential theological uh, discussion about what it means to thirst for God and that God being the ultimate satisfaction for the thirsts. Jesus is saying, there's only one source of water that truly quenches one's soul thirst, and it's me. So all of our longings for safety, love, belonging, justice, and satisfaction are met solely through the person and work of Jesus Christ, true living water. Important to note, especially when you're reading this story casually, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but there's a phrase that's pretty striking when he says... Jesus is saying you'll never thirst when you get this water. You can really misread that phrase, and I think it's important to say something about it. Jesus is not saying that once you become a Christian, you will not doubt or struggle or have soul thirst anymore. It's not what he's saying. Actually, the image um, of living water helps us understand what he means. The image of living water is referring more to the source of the water than anything else. So Jesus is saying, living water, I'm the source, and not only that, this source, this living water, never runs dry. That's what he means. So for you and me as Christians, we will get thirsty again. You can bank on that. You're kidding yourself if you don't. But the point is this. Christ is living water. Yes, our souls are thirst by, our our thirsts are quenched by him. Yes. But, This stream never runs dry, and it's always available to us. That's what he means. Next, we see that Christ knows about the woman's sexual sin, these multiple marriages. Look with me in verse 16. Jesus said to her, "'Go call your husband and come here.' The woman woman answered him, "'I have no husband.' Jesus said to her, "'You're right in saying I have no husband.' For you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Jesus shows that he has knowledge about what she's been through in her life. Further than that, Jesus wants this woman to know that he knows that she's had multiple marriages. Jesus wants her to know that she is known. He's essentially saying, I know your past— I know you've had multiple marriages. Further than that, I know your soul's thirsty. I know you're going, to, you're going to these places, and I'm standing right in front of you. Come to me. That's what he's saying. That's what's implied. Now, we should, this is important. Jesus does not view and treat this woman solely in terms of her immorality. Jesus does not view and treat this woman solely in terms of her sexual immorality. He treats her and sees her as someone who has soul thirst. Someone whose soul is thirsty. Listen to these words from John Stott in describing sexual immorality and sort of what under, underlies it. It's under the surface. At the heart of the sexual condition is deep loneliness. The natural human hunger for mutual love, a search for identity, and a longing for completeness. Why do you think that U2's most popular song that they've ever uh, written is, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For? The song is so popular, not only in their discography, but in American culture at large, why do you think that the parable of the prodigal son is so popular in biblical literature, but also it's become essentially a literary genre and a narrative genre in TV shows and movies and narratives all across the country? Like, there's so many prodigal son stories all over Netflix. Non-Christians are those that are, satisfied, that are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places, That is just the truth. And maybe I'm describing you before you're converted to Christianity if you're a Christian. Maybe I'm describing you here if you're not. But I think a serious temptation as Christians is to view those outside the church solely in terms of their immorality. Now, Jesus isn't downplaying this woman's sin. I'm not trying to downplay sin in this sermon. But what I am suggesting is that we should cultivate a vision that looks through the immoral acts. That when we see the immorality in our culture, we should learn to ask ourselves and ask one another, what are they thirsting for? And as Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know exactly what they're thirsty for. They're longing to know and to be known and to love and be loved by Jesus Christ, We see that the woman's getting closer and closer to this messianic identity that Jesus essentially is going to self-disclose in a very explicit way, but she still doesn't get the picture, and Jesus leads her step by step. She wants to change the subject. She wants to talk about the ins and outs of true worship, and Jesus talks about spirit and truth, wor- truth worship to contrast the kind of worship she's speaking of that's bound to a geographical location. That's what he's doing. But the climax of this story is when Christ finally and explicitly tells the woman who he really is. Look with me, starting in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He. Indeed, the, the weight of this statement cannot be overstated. Not only is it the climax of the story, but this statement actually encapsulates the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures. It cannot be overstated. And In this conversation, we see Christ leading this woman step by step, breaking cultural barriers, exemplifying patience and grace, leading her to himself. I who speak to you am he i 'm everything you've ever wanted it 's important to know that this is nothing new here 's what I mean Jesus is embodying what the people of God has always have always been called to do and to be a blessing to the nations. Israel was called to bring the light of God to the Gentiles because of their special relationship and covenant rescue. Um, the dramatic rescue of the Exodus that we're reflecting on today, in light of that rescue, then comes the law, then comes go bless the nations. A relationship with God always results as as a people being compelled to look outwardly. This has always been the core of our identity. This is exactly what Christ is modeling for us. Now, at the beginning of our time, we've acknowledged that we need help. I talked about my goofy family story and the goofiness and sinfulness of my own heart. I hope you found your own voice in mine. We need help. We need someone to show us how to do this right now in the world, to relate and treat non-Christians as we were called to. And we've seen Christ do it beautifully. Jesus didn't view the, and treat the Samaritan woman in terms of her race, her religion, her sin. He sees her as someone with value, as someone whose soul is thirsty, And look, as Pastor Ron went over, I know we can be overwhelmed right now as we look out in the world, especially when we hear language of systemic brokenness in our world. What can the church possibly do? I want to suggest, along with Pastor Ron, that we land and and die on the hill with Jesus Christ and seek Christ-likeness in our culture, to be like him. She was a social outcast, the Samaritan woman was, and Jesus went after her. He initiated her. We must seek to go outside the church to seek after those Jesus is bringing to himself. Let us be a people who not only see the image of God in non-Christians, but celebrate it, highlight it, and pray that God would penetrate their hearts to restore his image in them, let us not see the the immorality of the culture solely in terms of the acts, but the thirst underneath the acts. I want to I want to close with this quote from a, a commentator who highlights, or actually he he highlights um, the nature of living water and he underscores the significance of it, but he puts it in a fresh way in his translation. This is this is um, verse fourteen. Every single person who is drinking the water, that, that will, this water, will get thirsty again. But whoever once drinks the water that I will give will never, ever thirst again. In fact, the water that I will give that person will become in that person a fountain of water gushing up into deep, lasting life. Friends, don't you want that for the world? Don't you want that for St. Louis? Don't you want that for Webster Groves? Don't you want that for your co-workers and family members? Let us be a people who not only embody Christ's character to the world, but point to living water himself, Jesus Christ. Amen.